0: Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fallis. And today I will be talking with Ruben Rosario-Rodriguez, Associate Professor of Theological Studies at St. Louis University. Dr. Rosario-Rodriguez has published several books, including Racism and God Talk, A Latino Perspective, Christian Martyrdom and Political Violence, A Comparative Theology with Judaism and Islam, and his latest, Dogmatics After Babel, Beyond the Theologies of Word and Culture, which was published this fall. He is also an ordained Presbyterian minister who lived and served in in Central Ohio as a parish pastor, hospital chaplain, and homeless advocate with the YWCA Interfaith Hospitality Network. Welcome to the podcast, Ruben.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. I wish I could be in Ohio, actually. Right. (laughs) I miss Uh, it.
0: Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you have a connection with Ohio.
1: Yes, I do. Uh, My home presbytery was, I'm a presbyterian pastor, was New York City. And they wanted me to take a 400-member Latino uh, church in, um, uh, was it Queens? Somewhere in Queens, New York. Mm -hmm. And um, my wife was studying at Ohio State University. And Mm -hmm. so I felt like, you know, first of all, it, it might really push the church in a positive direction. If they had a, a Latino pastor from New York City come to Midwest and, and, and serve a, a just a kind of mainstream middle-class church. And mm-hmm. eventually my ordination committee felt that that might be a good thing, but finding a welcoming middle-class congregation <laughs> in Central Ohio uh, in, in the Presbyterian circles was, was not easy. <laughs> um, so I worked first with the homeless advocacy, and I, and I continued that as a volunteer throughout my years as a pastor um, with the Interfaith Hospitality Network there in Columbus, um, and then um, was a hospital chaplain in Lancaster, which is southeast of, of the city, southeast mm-hmm. of Columbus, uh, about 45 minutes or so, Um did that for three years. And when I eventually accepted a call, it was to a small rural church in a little town called Bremen, mm-hmm. which is uh, between Lancaster and Logan, mm-hmm. and and um, 800 people. Very, it was it was so different from Upper West Side Manhattan mm-hmm. to a town of 800 people. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I did most of my parish ministry, and. There were few Latinos there, although there was a, a fellow Puerto Rican in my congregation. But we we served a lot of the migrant workers who worked mm-hmm. in the peach and apple orchards, mm-hmm. and so they would often come to me in, in times of need. Um, and in my work as a hospital chaplain, I remember one family, young woman, probably all of sixteen, having her first child alone because her husband was worried that mm-hmm. if he came to the hospital, uh, la migra would get him. Mm-hmm. And so I had to kind of coach her through this. So I always romanticize my first child's delivery and, and was looking forward to it. But the first time I was in a delivery <laughs> room with was this young woman, and she was terrified. And, and, and it was a complicated birth, and mm. there was a rip. And I had to explain to this young girl how to take care of the episiotomy scar, mm. that she needed to return in a week. And, of course, once she was... Uh, release we never saw her again it was mm. it was heartbreaking right. but but again that's the typical pattern and this was 25 30 years ago you can imagine in in this current political climate how how scary it must be for for migrant workers um, in need of medical care
0: right you know? so you were hospital chaplain and sometimes partera also
1: exactly <laughs> whatever whatever was called for right. and you know right. helping people find shelter i met one guy who was staying at the Greyhound bus depot in in downtown Columbus, Mm -hmm. and I said, "Look, um, there's a Catholic church. I believe it was St. Mary's, Mm -hmm. um, that has a Spanish language ministry. They can help you find employment, a place to stay. Um, We had several hotels and restaurants who would employ people. I know, kind of off the books, but Mm -hmm. but help people get on their feet. And um, this was this broke my heart. You know what he told me? He said." so, cristiano, no catolico, and walked mm-hmm. away and refused to be helped, and mm-hmm. so that opened my eyes to. I've always been a very ecumenical person. Growing up Protestant in Catholic country, you just kind of accepted that that most people were Catholic. The the, the school calendar followed the Catholic calendar, mm-hmm. but but this kind of kind of evangelical distrust and sometimes outright hatred of, mm-hmm. of Catholicism mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. was very different than what I've been raised, and um, and has has has. Only gotten worse, I think. Sometimes, mm-hmm. um, but that that broke my heart because here I was trying to connect people to resources to find Spanish language communities that would welcome them, and to them it was an issue of ideology, and he'd rather he'd rather sleep on a bench at the bus station than
0: wow. yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, reading the work that you did here, while, where you li- while you lived in Central Ohio, and but then hearing you describe your work and and what that. What that really looks like, right? We often um, in our community wear multiple hats, mm-hmm. uh, depending yep. on what the need is, or you know the opportunity, or whatever it is. And you certainly uh, have embodied all of that um, in, in your time here, and I, and I assume in in the, in St. Louis, and also probably in, in the New work York that you do. And <laughs> mm-hmm,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, in, in New York, I worked with a lot of. Um, Undocumented uh, folks and um, getting them medical care was was particularly difficult. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had uh, an arrangement with the medical school at Columbia University. They had a big van, a big bus that would come once a month, and the medical school students from Columbia Presbyterian. And and so so we made sure that they had wellness checks, that they had um, you know if they had something pressing, that they would see a a doctor. And um, but again once a month and when you've got 200 people and they're sitting there in line waiting all day it it was not you know the the best care possible but it was better than nothing and and so i always feel when you're doing the work of liberation it's like triage care in a in a Mm -hmm.
2: hospital Mm
1: -hmm. you Mm -hmm. go to you identify the crises and you prioritize them worst first and and then you pull together very limited resources and and try to try to you know it's a bandage sadly Mm -hmm um... but that's not the full picture then you need to work systemically and so that's where the political dimension of our faith comes in and that's the one most parishioners in my experience, are uncomfortable
0: with. Right, they stay away f- uh, from that. Uh, so all of your books, in one way or another, put the theological Latina and Latino perspective at the center of the analysis. Um, and, you n- and I know that this podcast might not be enough to give us a complete yes. understanding of this yes. perspective, right? Uh, but can you talk about how this has allowed you to discuss the politics of race in yes. churches in the United States?
1: De- definitely. I think that the biggest insight of, of Latino theology, and this is a movement with, with roots dating to the 60s and 70s and the rise of identity movements, but but really uh, became a recognized academic movement in 1983 with the publication of Virgilio Lisondo's The Galilean Journey, where he identifies Jesus as, as mestizo. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: but but the biggest contribution to theological method and to the way people do theology and, and then employ it in, in a practical setting, is the role of autobiography. How important it is to identify our context, our experience, and how this shapes how we experience the divine, mm. how we experience God. And so God becomes a mestizo, or or God, or, or we approach the, the Bible in, in Spanish, mm-hmm. or Spanglish, or whatever you're most comfortable with. And, and so if there's a defining Aspect and there's a great diversity of Latino theologies and, and movements, always grounded in the grassroots. But if there's anything that that holds them together is the sense of beginning with the particular, with mm-hmm. the context, with the narrative and, and history of this community of these people, and and from there, how does God speak to us? Where do we find the good news in this context, especially when it's a, a history of of being marginalized, of being exploited mm-hmm. economically because you're undocumented or, or because your, your language is limited, um, and, and, and therefore, you know, where is the good news in all of this? And, um, and, and I think that's the key to understanding a distinctly U.S.-Latino liberation theology. Mm-hmm. It's, it's by making the role of our autobiography, of our experiences, so important for understanding who God is and how God works in the world. Does mm-hmm.
0: that, that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in your experience and in your research, how has the church, the mainstream ch- church, mm-hmm. I guess, been inclusive yes. and exclusive of marginalized voices?
1: Well, you know, I think um, my first book, Racism and God Talk, was an attempt to speak to the mainstream, mainline church, mm-hmm. and in particular, my Presbyterian church, which has a a strong history of being progressive, of marching with Dr. King, of supporting integration and civil rights, but um, it's always been on a a surface level, a Mm -hmm. degree of tokenism. And so when, for example, in the early 90s in Ohio, I was pushing for anti-racism education, um, I was meeting a lot of resistance, and resistance from well-meaning folks, some of whom were African-American themselves, but were just exhausted Mm -hmm. from having to fight. Mm-hmm. For, for this, and others who were who felt like well we 've already done this, well you know we, we have civil rights we have you know and, and, and to to open up their eyes to, to to the real systemic racism taking place they, they didn 't want to hear that they weren 't comfortable, so I was trying to communicate to, to that aspect of the of the mainline Protestant churches and i don 't know how well they heard me. The book was better received by Catholics than it was by Protestants, mm-hmm. but more interestingly. I decided to avoid the topic of white supremacy. I mention it maybe once in the book. I talk more about white privilege and and stayed away from from white supremacy and the analysis that people like Jim cohn, who's my former professor, have used in their black liberation theology mm. and and I regret that I kind of wish because because it 's only gotten worse in many ways mm. um, this entitlement mentality of of white male backlash just because they've had to acknowledge the the basic human dignity of other people they feel that somehow they're losing something and something is being taken from them and so i wish i'd included an analysis of white supremacy but then that begs the question would the book have even been published or received in ni- you know in 90s, 10 years right? ago
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and would would um you know, would it have gotten me tenure? I mean, all these <laughs> questions. If I'm ever offered a chance, and the book still sells, but if I'm ever offered a chance to revise it, it will definitely include a chapter on, on white supremacy and, 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 and the toxicity of it. Um, but yeah, it is hard to communicate to the mainstream church when you are um, you know, uh, advocating mm-hmm. for voices that, that are not there. Mm-hmm. or they're there, but they're not seen. They're in the basement. They're the custodian. They're the families coming to get food from the food pantry. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're failing them when we don't welcome them on Sunday morning, when we don't make them part of the life of the church. And I know my home church in New York City, well-meaning church, but they um, they they had an upstairs and a downstairs. You know, mm. you had the, the upstairs, the Sunday church the upper middle class uh, members of the congregation who, who funded the ministries, and then you had the downstairs, the people who came to the soup kitchen who stayed in our shelter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and you know, we tried. We tried to integrate and invite them to worship. Um, and maybe one or two eventually became members, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they never felt welcome. That divide was there and real. And and I see that everywhere. I see it in Catholic churches, and I see it, you know, my, my parents became Seventh-day Adventists. And one of the reasons they did was because it was a Spanish-speaking church mm-hmm. that they felt at home in. Yeah. And, and I hate to say it, they'll never feel that way in my Presbyterian churches, you know. It's right, rare, right. unless you're in New York City or, or the Southwest, you know, where there's a large kind of critical mass of Latinos.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in your second book, you talk about one of my heroes, um, Arzobispo Oscar Romero yes. from El Salvador, who mm-hmm. denounced the government's treatment of Salvadoran people and who was uh, later um, assassinated. How do we make sense of, uh, of such an important figure such as Oscar Romero and the struggle to protect the marginalized and the most vulnerable? Yes,
1: yes. You know, he, he, it's a great week. He's about to be canonized. Mm-hmm. Um this has been a long time coming. I just finished a month-long Bible study in a white, upper-middle-class church, <laughs> Presbyterian, uh, around the theme, why is Romero relevant for the church today? Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's, I would say there are three main points. The first is, of, is of course, his preaching. Mm-hmm. And his sermons are now available online, both in Spanish and English. And three years of sermons as Archbishop... Um, and, and in the chapter uh, that I did in this book that you mentioned, um, I, I read it as as a, a, a theology of martyrdom, because in the context of the, of the civil war taking place and building up, um, the context of persecution of priests, um, he was committed to nonviolence. Mm-hmm. But that meant that in the face of that kind of violence, many would die. And so in many ways he was preparing the parishioners for a... a the kind of struggle that that we 've rarely seen in human history, which is a nonviolent resistance to violence um, and I think had he lived, the Civil War would have gone very differently and probably wouldn 't have lasted as long. Mm. but I think his enemies knew that, and um, if you listen to his because he taped he had a, a audio recorder his his journals they 've been transcribed but you could hear the pain when you listen to the to the recordings that he he lamented every week losing more members to mm-hmm. the to the leftist guerrillas. Cause it was bad enough you had the right wing government and and the military,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but but many people were becoming disillusioned with with liberation theologies, call to nonviolence, and were leaving and joining the the leftist guerrillas, and and he he was pained about that. So his sermons are a great way to, to first of all, recognize that the church is there mostly to to preach the word of God, and that's its most effective tool. But another piece of of how to understand Romero is his own personality, his own charisma, and his office as archbishop. He he not only preached from the pulpit, but then he personally intervened. He would confront political leaders. He would meet with labor unions. He would meet with so-called terrorists on the left. He was... uh, basically a, a, uh, an ambassador for, for nonviolence, for peace, for ultimately fostering dialogue in the nation and trying to resolve um, all of the various problems through nonviolence. And th- that's an amazing example, and that's one of the reasons we can't let his memory go or disappear. And I think the most uh, effective way in which he, he drew attention was that open letter to Jimmy Carter two months before his assassination. Um, asking the U.S. to stop sending weapons because they're being used to kill the the people of El Salvador. Um, Timmy Carter never responded. I I would love an answer for him. I I just was interviewed for the Atlantic Monthly for a piece on the canonization of Oscar Romero, and the the interviewer was asking me, you know, I'm meeting with Timmy Carter. I'm hoping to get him to to answer some questions for this interview. Do you have any questions for him? And that was my question. I Mm said, I want to know. Why didn't you respond publicly? He appealed to you as a Christian, as, a, as a, uh, someone committed to, to nonviolence, and asked you to personally use your position and privilege to, to end the violence in El Salvador. Why did you not respond? Mm-hmm. I didn't, it did, you didn't have to appease him, but at least give him the dignity of a response, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet that's how Romero worked. He put himself and his office... Uh, on the line. And then the the last piece, and one that's least known about, is that Romero was was quite a pioneer in human rights advocacy. Mm -hmm. Um, What he created there in El Salvador, in San Salvador, he he got together uh, volunteer lawyers and he he created a model that's being used today throughout the world by non-governmental agencies of recording and tracking and, and, and documenting human rights abuses. And all of the people who disappeared and interviewing the victims of violence and just keeping a record and then taking that record to the government and trying to get the government to to do something about it. And when they ignore them, to go to international human rights agencies and basically to draw attention to what was happening through all legal means Mm -hmm. without resorting to violence. And just putting the issues on the world stage, um, so much so that that now that that's the norm. That's how all these human rights groups work. And and his thinking was, you know, eventually, the civil war will end. Eventually, there will be a, a, a more democratic regime, and eventually we'll have to rebuild. And so he wanted all of that documented. He wanted the truth to be known, so that these, these atrocities would not be repeated. And it's heartbreaking. Um, the work is slow, but, you know, there's still, I just read an article dated 2015 about the the mass graves that are still being uncovered. Mm-hmm. And they were interviewing the chief forensic scientist, and they asked him, you know, they found a, a mass grave of a thousand bodies, and they asked him what was the most surprising thing he discovered in 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 you know, uh, uncovering these bodies. And he says, well, so far, we haven't found a single body over the age of 12. So Mm -hmm. so for all those people who say that, oh, these were, this was a civil war and this was political and you had agents on the right and agents on the left, this was a mass grave, you know, uh, perpetrated by the government, the right wing, and all the victims were teenagers or children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's, how are you going to justify that?
2: Right.
1: so 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 Romero's legacy is is one of nonviolence, one of of preaching from the pulpit. His sermons were broadcast by radio. The whole nation tuned in every Sunday morning. There, there, a story is told by his biographer that you could walk through all of El Salvador um, without a radio on a Sunday morning and you'd hear the entirety of his sermon without missing a <laughs> beat because the sound would come out of every window that you yeah. walked past. Mm-hmm. And so you'd get the whole sermon. Um, then there was also the, the political dimension and that's the one that most people um, are, are, are hesitant to mm-hmm. embrace. That's the reason I think his canonization has taken so long. Mm-hmm. But he put the church to, to as, as a political agent, recognized that the church has political power, Um, And that it needs to use it a certain way. And for him, it was always in the service of greater democratization, uh, protecting those who are vulnerable, and always maximizing the dignity of people. Mm-hmm.
0: So and, he's, a, he's a great figure. Right. Uh-huh. Uh so just uh I want to say about 5 years ago is that I was reading an article about the massacre at El Mozote and, mm-hmm. um you know and they're describing uh, finding the bodies right and and um and what um I carry that in my memory now is that uh one of the um uh, anthropologists forensic anthropologists uh, found a body of a pregnant woman and they found the baby inside right that's oh. still there so the the bones obviously but yeah. um but you know that it's so um i mean that the the, the there is testimony right to that yeah. um and, um and yeah so one of, another thing that you mentioned is that that political dimension of Oscar Romero, right? Where he, um, I'm, sh- I'm sure, he was experiencing a lot of pushback from the government, but also from um, some other Catholic churches, right? That yes, that uh, identified more with yeah. the government or the government values, uh, mm-hmm. especially those that were um, probably upper class, rich, yeah, uh, Catholics.
1: Yes, and and some people would say that one of the reasons his canonization was was uh, slowed down and has taken so long is because under John Paul II um, and under Benedict, there was a move to to push out the more liberal bishops and to place mm-hmm. them with more traditional and conservative bishops. And so there's been an attempt by the Vatican to kind of um, control the, the face of, of Latin American Catholicism. And, and believe me, Francis um, has caused a lot of ire, because one of the first things he did was reach out to Gustavo Gutierrez. And then he, he jump-started the canonization process of Romero Mm -hmm. and and said that this is a priority. So in 2015, he was beatified and now this coming Sunday, he will be, um, canonized. So, um, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of of very traditional Catholics throughout the world, but, but in particular in, 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 in the U S and in Latin America who are, um, not happy, and if you look at all of the people bad mouthing Francis, it mm-hmm. tends to originate from one of those two places, you know. Um, so it's frustrating. Right. The politics um, of the church ought to be in, in the service of of doing God's work, and 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 for a liberation theologian, that that begins with with that triage mentality. I said, where is the most suffering? Where is the most need? And there we are. Um, And and Francis has has really done that. He's made those priorities, the church's priority, but but there's been a backlash, sadly.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about liberation theology, which um, you uh, identify as um, committed to working with the poor and the oppressed, but that it also carries this as, um, you know, exercised through Oscar Romero that um, even though it was a non- Um, violent movement, it became that, right, because Mm -hmm. of what he was trying to change or the the attention he was trying to get. Um, Can you tell us, is this something that, um, uh, liberation theology, is this something that originated in Latin America? Yes. And and do you see that... um, as an identity for the Latina or Latino church or uh, uh, Christians and churches in the United yes. States?
1: Yes, it is not the, the only defining characteristic mm-hmm. of, of Latino Christianity, and it is not um, the, the only form of Latin American, in particular Catholicism. But, but liberation theology, um, was first the term was first used and coined in Latin America. Um, Gustavo Gutierrez, in 1968, gave a lecture in Geneva called Toward a Theology of Liberation, mm. uh, and he was a Catholic speaking to the World Council of Churches, which is a Protestant union of, of various Protestant denominations. And and that very same year. The first book published with the word liberation was by the Brazilian Presbyterian Ruben Alves, his doctoral dissertation for Princeton Seminary called Toward a Theology of Liberation. And what both latched on to was the sense that um, Latin America is a history of colonialism and exploitation, and that even in the 60s when... There was an attempt to help Latin America develop and move into the modern world. It was still in a colonial framework. Mm -hmm. And so this language of development of the third world was, was not meeting the true needs. What needed to happen was a liberation and empowering. If you're working towards democratization, which is what the U.S. always says it's doing, then you need to put the power in the people and that means a true democracy not an oligarchy not an aristocracy and therefore that means you you need an empowered electorate that will make decisions and in latin america where um, sixty to eighty percent of the people live in extreme poverty and at the time Mm -hmm. then then the electorate will look very different than the ruling classes that had been controlling latin america throughout its colonial history and so that entails not necessarily a violent revolution but definitely a cultural revolution there needs to be a shift and there needs to be a change and and so the church was trying to yes impact democracy and increase democracy but at the same time, was fighting its own internal revolution, because suddenly Gutierrez, in his first book, uh, A Theology of Liberation, which was published in Spanish in 1971, basically said the church needs to choose sides. And that means that when the majority of the church is poor, and there is a a small group of Christians, or so-called Christians, who are exploiting the poor, then the church needs to choose sides and and recognize that that living out the faith might entail Christian versus Christian for a battle for the soul of the church, as to who is truly the church, who's mm-hmm. truly preaching the gospel. And believe me, it, it became a militarized battle, and, and those, those oligarchies and those aristocratic, and, and El Salvador is, is the prime example. The, the families that made their money as coffee growers and, and had mm-hmm. exploited the, the, the peasant farmers for generations did not want to you know, relinquish any of that power. Right. I don't know if you knew this. The Universidad de Centroamérica, the, the Jesuit University there in San Salvador, was founded in reaction to the, the just history of corruption. The, the state universities, the political mm-hmm. science departments, were in the pockets of the the dictators and the generals, and so they would publish surveys. That said, that, that the election was a landslide in favor of the of the incumbent or or the dictator. So why even bother voting, etc. Mm-hmm. So so UCA was actually founded in great part to establish an independent. A religious university was founded to to establish an independent um, program of political science to to, mm-hmm. dis- to describe what was actually happening in the country. And that was dangerous, were, right? I mean, I'm, yes.
0: I'm I'm guessing there was a lot of. Um, maybe uh, yeah. possibly repression even,
1: right? That's right. And, mm-hmm. and and during the Civil War, the campus was invaded several times by the military. Mm-hmm. And then in 89, November of 89, the six Jesuit professors right. were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's what it means then to politicize the church. They weren't calling for violence. They weren't revolutionaries. They wanted democracy. Mm-hmm. They wanted um, reforms. But... The, those in power were so um, entrenched in their power that, that they were willing to, to kill for it, which then created a, 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 a left mm-hmm. revolutionary movement in response. Mm-hmm. But, um, oh, tragic. Right, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, you have written about the Latina, Latino theology as one done en conjunto. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted you to talk to us about this, concept and understanding how Latinos and Latinas practice Christianity, especially here in the U S and maybe talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you comment at the beginning of the podcast, you said, you know, this man that you were trying to, um, offer, uh, you know, a, a place yeah. for him to stay. He said, "You know, um, Cristiano, not católico. Um, exactly. Where does where does that fit into the whole? Yeah. You know, en conjunto." Uh, practice?
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. There, there are two ways of answering this question. First of all, it's a phrase that that was popularized by academics, mm-hmm. and in, in in our context as academics, it's very radical to engage in scholarship in a communal way.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Intellectual property is seen as, as, as power, okay. and you don't want someone to beat you to the punch and publish something before you do, and you don't share it, you don't discuss it, mm-hmm. you're in your ivory tower. En um, conjunto challenges that and says that that intellectual property is communal, that it reflects um, the community's praxis, and that that it's not, especially as theologians, we don't own this, this is, you know, um, we, we're serving God. It's a vocation. It's a calling. And so the idea is, we were trying to encourage each other, support each other, help each other get published, and and also a- attain tenure, to to have a, a more of a Latino representation within academia by working together, by working in conjunto. And and that that accomplishes several things. One is. You recognize that that no one voice has all the answers, so by by being in dialogue you're 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 providing a more optimal re- response to a particular issue, one that has been vetted by multiple voices with different experiences so that's point number one point number two is that um, it, it, it it then um, engenders two things one is solidarity with those who who we're hoping to represent in academia, you know, just as Romero saw himself as a voice for the voiceless in his role as archbishop, we, we echo that in our work as, as scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then, um, in the churches it 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 manifests itself in a different way and one of the ways that that latino theologians have tried to do that is through an intentional ecumenism to recognize that yes uh... many of of us coming from a latin american context have experienced some real tensions between catholics and protestants evangelicals and and mainline protestants etc but in the u.s context we're all Latinos. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. um, there's this wonderful little essay written by the Cuban liberation theologian Miguel de la Torre, who was, came from an aristocratic background in, in Cuba and saw himself as, as white growing up in Cuba, it gets to the U.S., and suddenly he's brown, he's mm-hmm. other. He's not, you know. And so, this recognition that however else we might see ourselves, even if, if we think we've been accepted into, into the mainstream evangelical church in this country, there's always a, an asterisk or a footnote. Mm-hmm. We're always other by virtue of our ethnicity or national origin. And so it, it's an effort to recognize the importance and need to work together across confessional lines, In conjunto. And, and one of the ways we make that point is by reminding people that, that the term Hispanic was actually coined by the Nixon administration as a way of, you know, uh, a census of counting and, and, and identifying, and that when you meet most Latinos, we, we identify, so Puerto Ricanos, so Colombiano,
2: you
1: know, fill in the blank. Um, but it's, a, it's an act of, of, of political act to identify as Latino, Latina, Latinx, however you want to define it at the moment. So we need to recognize that, that despite our, our different backgrounds in this country, we share a lot of similar experiences of being marginalized, of being racialized, and of being uh, exploited economically. And and that's where we want to begin, to recognize that, yeah, we might be Pentecostal or evangelical or Catholic, but in the end, we're all Latinos. And this goes back to the beginning of our talk where I said Mm -hmm. our contribution to theology is recognizing the importance of autobiography Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in talking about God and how God manifests God's self.
0: Absolutely. Um, So... I want you to I, I wanted to, to spend the last few minutes talking about your latest book dogmatics okay. of after Babel but um which to me signals automatically this issue with language <laughs> so I'm interested exactly. to hear that in yeah. um, um, so talk to us and, a and the more.
1: epigraph to the book is a quote from a uh, an old Testament professor and a friend of mine who passed away he always reminded us words mean something mm. you know and, and part of the 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 book is is a very heady book, it's a book about theory and methodology, but I always bring it down to the end to to a a liberative social justice praxis. But one of the things I'm dealing with is this kind of postmodern moment we're living in, where suddenly words um, can mean whatever you want them to mean, especially Mm -hmm. in the political field. I mean, look at the fake news being thrown out at us all Mm -hmm. the time. Um, And And we can't lose that. We need to recognize that, um, yes, there are a diversity of perspectives. For some people, that seems to be a negative thing, a babble, confusion of languages. Mm -hmm. Can we even talk to one another? And so I begin with that image from the Bible, and I begin to look at, well, why is it that we can't talk to one another? You know, we've created certain hierarchies and certain dominant narratives, and I identify those as as Bart and Tillich in, in the world of theology but that there have been attempts to to move beyond that. And so I look at feminist theology. Mm -hmm. I look at a movement called radical orthodoxy, which is kind of a a mainstream, I hate to say it, but predominantly white, although there are some some, uh, minority representatives, uh, movement, um, and then liberation theology. And I look at the work of Miguel de la Torre in particular. Uh, and, And how do we get beyond this babble of competing perspectives and try to find some common ground. And I mm-hmm. look at how they've each tried to do that, identify where they failed, and then suggest that a new way of moving forward is by focusing on God's work in the world, the work of the Holy Spirit, and how do we identify that? And and suggest that that the way to do that across all religious boundaries is wherever basic human dignity is being. Uh, defended, mm-hmm. worked for, and, and, and you know, systemically challenged, right? If, mm-hmm. if we're challenging wherever human dignity is, is it threatening, if we fight back, we resist, there's the work of the Spirit. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim or Buddhist or Christian or evangelical. If you're doing this work of God, then then we can trust that, that God is there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's kind of where the book ends. Um, and so I, I kind of bookmark or... or You know, begin with Babel and the confusion of languages and end with Pentecost. And the image Mm -hmm. at Pentecost is is also liberative because rather than viewing many languages and many cultures as threatening, Pentecost embraces every language, Mm -hmm. each person in their own particularity, but does so as a gift to the Spirit. So the way it works is everyone spoke their own language, everyone heard peter's preaching in their own language even though peter was speaking aramaic and you know was a galilean jew everyone from all over the roman world heard it in their own language so it's 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 a sign from god embracing this diversity of cultures and languages so that's kind of how the book ends what what was seen to be a problem the confusion of many languages ought to be celebrated and is seen as a gift of the Spirit. And so in theology, that means rather than insisting that there's only one right doctrine, right, which I label a theological totalitarianism, then we need to recognize that if God, who is the God of all creation, is comfortable with many different religions, then maybe we need to be comfortable with a a doctrinal diversity. Mm -hmm. So really that's what the book is trying to do, to kind of push us between this tribal Attempt to to paint God into our own little boxes. God is Protestant. God is Catholic. God is um, Anglo. God is Latino. You know, mm-hmm. and and recognize that that God is is bigger than all of us, and there's no box big enough to, for us to cram God in. Right,
0: right. So I know you just completed this. So this is you know your latest project. But are you? I know you're on sabbatical. <laughs>
1: And so I have, I, I've actually, this book was completed well over a year ago. It takes that long sometimes oh, for things to I get know. to press. So this last <laughs> month I just finished editing a collection on political theology. It's called the T.N.T. Clark Companion to Political Theology. And I um, invited authors from a diversity of perspectives and religious backgrounds 36 different chapters, articles mm-hmm. on a variety of topics, 300,000 words. This is going to be a monster, and hopefully it'll Sounds be like... out next June. Mm-hmm. And then I'm under contract. What I'm working on during my sabbatical is the T.N.T. Clark Introduction to Liberation Theology. This is going to be an introductory textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm
0: also sounds great. Um, sounds yeah. Alive. And then I'm also developing. It'll definitely be on my list to read. Oh, good.
1: Yeah, that one I think will 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 do very well because it's going to have case studies and it's mm-hmm. going to have a glossary and and little biographies of the various key theologians mm-hmm. and pastors. So I think it'll I think it'll be a, a popular. Um, and then my next project I'm. I'm Cambridge University uh, has a series on religion and science. And one of the, the, the kind of publics that I identified in Dogmatics After Babel, not only are we dealing with religious pluralism, but we're dealing with secularism, and in particular, the narrative of the natural sciences. And so I'm working on a book um, called On the Side of the Angels um, – Rediscovering Human Uniqueness or or something like that and Mm -hmm. and I'm going to put a book proposal together between now and and the end of December to try to get this as my next book after the introduction Wow, you're very Uh, very prolific (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's kind of crazy Um, Trying to uh, catch up with
0: Miguel de la Torre I'm sure
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's not even close, right. but, you know, if if you read the introduction to either of my two recent books, my career was kind of put on hold for four and a half years. My son is a leukemia survivor, mm-hmm. and so um, in 2011, um, just as I was had gotten the contract and was beginning to write the martyrdom book, my son got sick, mm-hmm. and so I had to put that aside, mm-hmm. I had to put everything aside, um, and so, four and a half years, our focus is, as, a, as parents was our son's health. And my, my wife is an academic as well, and somehow she managed to get her book written and out in the midst of all this, um, back in 2014. But it wasn't until after he was beyond the, the treatment and, and doing well that that I got back to the martyrdom book, mm-hmm. got that published, and then. I knew that I was up for a promotion for full professor soon, and I Cambridge. It was going through some internal restructurings, and so my book was delayed by mm. two years. Wow. So it was it, I, I was done with it in 2015, but it wasn't published until 2017. So in the meantime, I was desperate. I, You know, finances being what they are, we needed we needed a raise, so I needed to, to make full professors. So I, I accepted the contract for Dogmatics after Babel and somehow churned that out in two years um, because, you know, it to put it this way uh, it, our health insurance is very good but uh, a 10 day hospital stay was around $100,000 mm-hmm. and we still had to pay 10% of that that was right. our you know so uh, you know sometimes academic decisions are, are not driven by ideals sometimes mm. it's practicalities nice
0: family mhm Ruben, thank you for this interview. It's uh, pr- we probably need to do part two and three and four, maybe about <laughs> Latino theology, um, and yeah. hopefully get um, a few other voices uh, to talk about um, this important topic uh, in perspective from from the various um, yeah. you know traditions and things like that. Yeah. Well, Elena, thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. Yes. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.